Greetings and hello world. This is Mike and welcome to the Mike Mantel podcast. On this podcast, I will be exploring wisdom and the state of culture by entering into trippy, intimate, conversational vortices with thought leaders and waymakers and big splashers from all different angles of the consciousness movement. This is my first episode, so welcome and thank you for listening. And I gotta say, I'm so stoked to be getting this podcast out into the world. I had a dream for this project years ago, and it took such a long time for me to own the dream, acknowledge the dream, and then for circumstances and situation and timing to line up for me to be able to pursue this. And God, I am so grateful and feel so privileged to have the opportunity to talk to super badass people and learn about life from them. So the super badass dude I talked to today is a guy named George Pitagorsky. George lives in New York and he's a spiritual teacher. He teaches a variety of wisdom traditions. And I met George when he was teaching at a Buddhist center in New York called New York Insight. And I took a six-month class from him, and it was a, at a pretty pivotal time in my life when I had just gotten back from traveling and monastery hopping, and I really wanted to commit myself to my spiritual path and wanted to become a monk. And yet, I found myself living in New York City because I had fallen in love with a beautiful, beautiful woman. And so I was trying to reconcile living in a city and wanting to be more committed to my sense of spirituality. And taking this class from George really helped because the whole theme of the class was exploring the depth of Buddhist principles and applying them to everyday life out in the world. So in today's episode with George, we touched on a similar theme. We talked about how to explore the absolute truth of human reality and reality beyond humanity and how to integrate that into the relative truth of just getting through the day and having relationships and making money and dealing with the nitty-gritty of life and finding the balance between the absolute and the relative there. And we talked about where the balance is between the wisdom of ancient spiritual traditions and innovating to update that wisdom to fit modern contemporary contexts. And we talked about intimacy and the role of intimacy for a spiritual teacher, and how to transmit wisdom through mere eye contact and presence. So, I hope you have a blast listening to the episode today, pick up a nugget or two, and I'm super grateful that you're listening to this podcast, and it's really such a joy for me to be able to open up my curiosity on these amazing people. And I really hope that you learn from either my process or my curiosity or these people's process and that you get some value out of this podcast. If you like this episode, I I urge you please to go to iTunes and give this a five-star rating and or write it a review. I would be so immensely grateful if you give this podcast a five-star review and or write a rating for it and it feels in alignment for you. Send me a Facebook message and I will give you a sincere compliment. I will look at your profile and I will do my best to get a sense of who you are and I will give you a genuine compliment. So, without further ado, I present to you George Pitagorsky. I'll see you in there, folks.
what does it mean to be a spiritual teacher? If that if that's a term you identify with, being a spiritual teacher in my mind is a uh, an incredibly important uh, responsibility, and one that requires uh, particularly. Uh, well, depending on one's definition of what a spiritual teacher is, but it, to me, it's something that requires the ability to practice and um, integrate all of what is being taught into uh, one's life. Not in any way being perfect at it, you know, but recognizing that as a spiritual teacher, unless you're enlightened, you are on the same level as your students. There's, you know, there's just a difference uh, of for perhaps experience and knowledge. So to be a spiritual teacher in my mind is to be able to uh, take what you've learned in your own uh, practices and your own studies and, uh, and experience and use it so as to uh, give other people an opportunity to, to see where they could be or what they could be doing or how that reson how my experience may resonate with them, and in doing that, it's I think important as a spiritual teacher to uh, to maintain an adherence to a uh, to a wisdom teaching, or perhaps an eclectic wisdom teaching, but to not make stuff up. You know, it's not like creating a new age religion of some sort. There's enough uh, intrinsic no uh, knowledge and wisdom in the uh, in the world over the last you know who knows how many millennia. Uh, to uh, to work with and to use as a framework and to you know to make sure that one is uh, in sync with that whole um, set of uh, experiences and practices and um, values and so forth. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. That was really well. First of all, a really interesting way of looking at it of viewing a teacher just as somebody who practices and really embodies their own path and is just further along their path and experience than someone who might identify not as a teacher or as a student. But I appreciate that definition because there's such a um, humility to it. And I think it that really helps negate like a lot of the, I don't know, inherent power dynamics that I think can seep into just teacher-student roles. Though there was also, I wanted to ask you, what you said at the end there I thought was super interesting about not making stuff up. And I'm, and I'm curious where the line for you is there because like at least in the way I'm looking at things right now, it seems like anyone's worldview where I, I'm learning from wisdom traditions and I'm learning from teachers and people with more experience. But at the end of the day, I still am making up my own worldview and, and, and creating my own path. And I'm wondering for you, what's the difference between making something up and like, um, and just kind of um, being existentially responsible for your own worldview? That's a great question. Uh, so, you know, what's coming up for me with regard to that is that the the line is really about first of all recognizing that even if you think that what you're doing is like completely solid and like really healthy and getting you enlightened and maybe you are already enlightened if you can question that and reflect it against the uh, you know the kind of the wisdom teachings that you will be more likely not to cross any kind of line of you know, you know creating a delusion 
So it's always coming back to some benchmark, some way of saying, okay, this seems, you know, it's real and it's expressed in one way in the Sufi tradition, another way in, you know, uh, Vajrayana Buddhism and another way in Theravadan Buddhism and another way in, you know, whatever, Christianity or whatever. So you've got now the ability to take in the teachings from any number of those traditions. You know, of course, we're in a multicultural, multi-traditional uh, environment here. You know, we're a Christian, Judeo-Christian country. Uh, you grew up in, in a, what, a Christian home? A Jewish? Uh, Jewish. Hmm? Jewish home. Yeah, so, so, you know, so that whole tradition is like somewhere in the, in the bones and genes and mind. And then you come in contact with the Eastern traditions and, and what have you. So you start to see a, uh, a commonality. Where is the commonality? What's, what are each of them really bringing to the table as the core teaching that they might be having? So if you can take it from there, you now see that there are, there are distinctions between them and contradictions between them and so forth. My practice has been to basically recognize wherever there's a contradiction between different levels of, uh, you know, different kinds of teaching traditions, different, uh, uh, different traditions, there's a, uh, a possibility that neither one of them are correct and that there's a way of stepping back behind that and seeing what the, what the reality is. So rather than getting caught up in you know some kind of doctrinal uh, argument about something, uh, you transcend the argument. Now at the same time, there's a lot of usefulness in having the argument, you know, in having a dialogue and having debates and, and all of that. Very useful from the point of view of exchanging knowledge and getting deeper knowledge. But from the point of view of uh, you know just cutting through and uh, not um, doing anything but you know, being here and now and in, in the most authentic way, then you have just drop back behind the, uh, you know, the intellectual game of uh, this is right, this is wrong, and see what, what are you feeling? Is it authentic? Is it helpful? Is it making you happy? Is it making other people happy? What's the, you know, the feeling tones of it? And then if that feels right, and you still question even that uh, potential delusion, then you keep going, and you keep studying, and you keep experiencing until you're, you know, you're cooked, so to speak. Hmm. Yeah, cool. Wow, I'm, I'm just realizing in this conversation really quickly, you're just dropping like um, so many uh, beautiful wisdom bombs. I, there's like uh, 10 different routes that I want to take this every time I hear you speaking. But at least one, one thing, one place I want to go was something you were saying at the at the beginning there of when of studying different wisdom traditions and and using those as reflections and benchmarks and i was curious in your view is there room for like spiritual innovation in well that it depends on how innovative you want to be you know what what degree of innovation certainly People can make up new mantras or new uh, you know, affirmations and things like that. That's kind of creative. Uh, whether or not you're going to have a, uh, you know, like a new rendition of what God means or uh, you know, whether or not a, you know, uh, a particular approach is, is you know, programmed and choreographed in a particular way to, you know, to innate. You know, I, I personally uh, 
I don't have, I can't say one way or the other. I mean, you know, clearly some innovation is necessary because we're adapting teachings that come from different cultures to, you know, to a new cultural milieu. So there is a certain need for innovation, but if you take it too far, then it waters down and, and becomes ego driven and, you know, gets just more samsara. So, uh, you know, what's the right balance? I don't know the answer to that question, but it's always look at, look for the middle ground in some way. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Cool. I, I like that. I, I was also wondering if, um, when you were speaking of like the process of looking at different traditions and seeing where contradictions arise, at least in one's own experience, are there any contradictions that you've come across that have really struck you, uh, whether recently or just his, uh, in general? Well, uh, a couple of, I mean, you know, when you look at it from a philosophical and, uh, you know, uh, the, the, theocratic uh, perspective, there are certainly uh, differences and seeming contradictions between the notion of self and non-self, you know, the, and between the Hindu and, and uh, Buddhist traditions, as I understand it, there's that, you know, ongoing uh, issue. Uh, certainly there's a, you know, interesting distinction between the, uh, uh, the Western, you know, the Judeo-Christian religions, you know, including Islam in that, uh, in, the, in the way that they perceive uh, a single God as opposed to, you know, multiple gods with respect to the, uh, you know, to the Hindu tradition and, you know, a no God with respect to the uh, Buddhist tradition. These are contradictions that for me have been kind of interesting to explore, you know, to find what's, you know, what's underneath all of that. What are they really trying to say? And so I tend to not get into the, uh, you know, to the, uh, to the surface of each of the, uh, you know, each of those traditions, you know, delved into, you know, a number of them, but to rather say, okay, stepping back, if I'm interpreting the Judeo-Christian uh, uh, approach and philosophy in a reasonable way, I see that when they talk about God, they're talking about this totally unfathomable, unbounded, beyond any kind of name, naming capability, you know, without concept. And when I look at the Buddhist tradition, I find that the, uh, you know, the, the, the non-dual state, the, uh, you know, the, the state of uh, perhaps enlightenment and, you know, in some definition of what that means is kind of the same thing. You know, it's like this unbounded clarity, emptiness beyond any kind of concept as the, uh, you know, as the, fundamental ground for everything so how different are those things so you know so that's the way i've kind of reconciled come down to i've come down to that uh, you know that notion of what's the ground what are we you know really dealing with here and uh, you know whether you call it love or rigpa or uh, god or whatever uh it's the same thing you know it's the basic ground from which everything now appears and seeing it that way enables me to recognize that I'm more in the appearances mode of operation, you know, samsara and moving through my uh, process of coming back into uh, immersion or not, not even coming back to immersion, recognizing that I'm already immersed in that ground and not 
flaking out into uh, you know into some kind of deluded state, caught up in samsara. Yeah, yeah, totally. And well, yeah, what when that that space that you're talking about of I guess the different words you threw on it of God or love or whatever. I guess like well, in my experience, I've touched places that I interpret to be that place, or at least directions towards that place as little uh, kind of what feels like clues, clues along my path. And it made me, um, well, just wonder in your experience, do you remember the first time that you either touched or came into contact with, with that place? I could say there was a very interesting experience that I had when I was maybe around in my thirties sometimes. So my son, who at the time was maybe three or four years old, I think. He wanted a rifle. It was like a plastic rifle that shot these little uh, yellow plastic pellets. At the, so this is in the early 1970s. My wife and I are both totally appalled by the, uh, uh, the idea of getting this kid a gun. But he, <laughs> he persevered continuously recognizing that this is what he wanted. His desire was like very, very strong. Not in a negative way, but just, you know, persistent. So one day I'm walking in Manhattan, going to the subway, and uh, clattering to my feet comes this rifle. The exact thing that he was looking to, to get. It just falls to my feet. And I look around, you know, there's a lot of old people, you know, moving back and forth in the streets, uh, you know, going wherever they're going. And uh, there's this thing. Nobody seemed to look back to the fact that they dropped it or anything like that. I just, at that moment, realized that there was magic. There was, you know, there was this quality of being able to manifest a physical object simply by virtue of your uh mind and your concentration and perseverance. Now, I could be completely deluded with respect to it. It could have been a complete accident, but there have been too many of those kinds of little accidents to really get uh, too strongly behind denial. So I, you know, picked it up, of course, and, you know, uh, brought it home, which in those days was a little easier than today. If you walk on the subway with a rifle, you know, people will Definitely not be happy, but <laughs> yeah, that's a red, yeah, that's a red uh, flag. <laughs> so, uh, but in this, you know, at the same time, so took it home, and in that moment, there was this kind of great recognition that all of these models that I've been having about the way things are are just like broken. They're no, you know they're no longer valid, and I don't know what is. So. That was a you know an interesting breakthrough moment for me, uh, and then you know, you know rather than talking about my experiences, I prefer to uh, you know to to basically have people have their own experiences, and recognize that when you, for example, you could be reading a uh, uh, a poem or a, you know a song of some sort, and you because of the way that it's worded and your past experience and your current experience, you get a hit of, uh, of that kind of that space that you're talking about. That story is an interesting one, though. It, it, it reminds me of, um, I remember when I read Be Here Now, um, when Ram Das was talking about 
when his guru like knew something about his mom ramdas's mom that like he couldn't have known and it just like it, it just like broke his concept of reality which i guess split open space for other possibility that's an interesting thing too actually of like because I know the the realm of like um, putting concentration onto something and then it appearing in the universe is like a concept that a lot of traditions explore or play with or whatever. But that's that's something I was finding interesting upon at least my explorations of Buddhism that it gave me a really good sense of what uh, the the illusion of self and it gave me like really good tools to to witness my experience and be able to take a step back from my inner experience and see it as just like this combination of all these things that were happening. And that's been really valuable to me. But, but for me, I don't, I, at least in, in my view, I don't know if there's a place where that connects to the world of like, I don't know, I guess I would call it manifesting. Um, or at least that seems to be a popular word for kind of what you were pointing at. And I'm wondering, um, in your view, is there is there a link between those two like realms of spiritual exploration, the exploration of non-self, God, that kind of stuff, and then the exploration of like putting of uh, affecting yeah, reality? Yeah. No, I, I think those those two things almost have to go together, and that the, uh, in, in my opinion, the denial of the realm of manifesting or, or and manifestation is. Um, it's, it's not it's not a skillful uh, thing to do because uh, you know as it says in the heart center this form is form emptiness is emptiness form is also emptiness and, and so forth the uh, the notion is that there is an absolute state or an absolute realm and a uh, a realm of the relative and you know, there are many teachings that uh, kind of describe the the absolute you know whether it's God or uh, you know the non-differentiated space of uh, of um, you know just the universe without differentiation, whatever you know, however you want to define that, and then the relative state is the state that we find ourselves in when we are in a body and we have a, you know an intellect, we have a uh, a community of relationships of not only humans but all things and beings. Uh, so we've got that. That's happening. So we can't deny that is happening. So now, how do we make the best of that? So if uh, if one cultivates that that sense of uh, of insight into the nature of things as being, you know, as you were saying, you know, if you do the uh, the practice of vipassana, for example, you're going to get the insight into the nature of your mind and the nature of your uh, your environment. You see it as impermanent. You see it as empty of, of, of self. Everything is just phenomena arising and passing away. So now you're in this, this state of understanding that, embodying that, that knowledge, and you're now in the process. Process hasn't stopped. So there's this process that's going on, and your ability to manage in it, to, you know, to work in it, to be not uh, you know, kind of just driven away, by, driven down the path by it. Your ability to do that is enhanced greatly by your understanding that comes from the uh, uh, the, the realization of some kind of a non-dual uh, uh, reality. Huh. Oh, wow, that's a cool way to put that, of like, 
um, in realizing or exploring the absolute, it gives more agency in the yeah. relative. So, you know, so, but now it's, it's an integration as opposed to using it as a tool. It's now, how do you integrate those two things? Because as soon as you start using it as a tool, now you can get caught up in the, you know, the strength of manifesting things. So you start manifesting cause or, you know, whatever. So uh, there's a need to, you know, continuously go uh, to integrate those two as opposed to using one in the context of, an, of another. And then the integration is now allowing you to use the karmic process that you're involved in as more fuel for the, uh, you know, for the fire of uh, ultimately realizing uh, nirvana. You know, because everything that you're coming in contact with is just a, you know, it's more phenomena, but you're, you know, will you still be caught up in it? Will you be, you know, involved on a neurotic level or, you know, some other kind of level? You know, how is it playing out? And how are you using the playing out and your observation of it to increasingly inform your practice? Right. Yeah, totally. Gosh, I feel like there's certain, like, um, things that it always comes down to. And like, balance just seems to be one of those things that, like, just always makes sense. Just because, yeah, hearing you say that, like, yeah, like I've, uh, I've personally totally been in places where I'm, well, out of balance and pursuing the absolute. And I remember periods of my life where I thought that, like, every conversation had to be about the meaning of life and, like, fun wasn't a thing. And it was just so heavy. And I've certainly been out of balance, probably am out of balance currently in the other direction of really valuing the relative and putting so much um, like stock in the material world. Huh? Well, I'm, I'm curious, what's the relationship? Um, and when you're speaking of integration of integration and, um, and real and realization, as I understand it, if one fully integrates the, the that wisdom that, you know, that, that unnameable thing that, you know, that's represented in the absolute, that uh, if one integrates that into the uh, in with the relative, that's realization. You know, I don't think that there's any more heaven than you know than being able to completely integrate the teachings and your practices into your day to day life, and you know appear as a uh, you know as much of a bodhisattva as you can possibly do, and recognize at the same time that you're probably not going to be perfect for you know this lifetime, maybe at the end of it, you know, <laughs> uh, but you know keeping the, the humility aspect of it yeah. Uh, going. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's, it's a pretty cool uh, activity for me to be in conversation and like try to empathize with and like relate to you and your worldview because, well, you're at such a different point in your life path and, and life than I am. I guess for me, one interpretation of me moving through life is that everything is a teacher all the time. Like uh, conflicts I'm going through become teachers and I'm learning lessons and like seemingly once I've learned that lesson, like a new teacher pops up and the teachers can be, man, can be anything, can be like confidence or social media even or, or money and just places that I'm stuck. At, at this point in, in your life, what are like the things that are your present teachers? <laughs> uh, well, let me say this, that you know, I think that having that notion that everything is a teacher, regardless of what age one is, 
uh, is in and of itself a you know like a, a wonderful sign of some kind of maturity. Oh, well, it's, thank you. You know, it's recognizing that you are on a path. You're you need you you know you want a teacher, that and you know I'm assuming that your your goals are you know, like well established on that level. So you now see everything as is being integrated into that uh, teaching uh, experience that you're uh, involved in. So it's a very important thing to recognize uh, as to what is, <laughs> what's happening in my life uh, that is uh, teaching. Well, just uh, tomorrow, I'm having my left hip replaced with a titanium implant. So um, the, uh, you know, like the notion is that uh, that could be a, you know, a, a incredible uh, teaching in and of itself, and it is because you know it's basically it's the first time my body is ever being cut into, uh, and you know even if it wasn't, it would still be my body being cut into, and there's a uh, you know there's a whole set of issues that arise in that, and surprisingly so, I'm not nervous about it. It's like you know it's just seeing you know every once in a while you know. A thought will arise about uh, you know what pain it's going to be and all of that kind of stuff, and then it just goes away. So it's like a tremendous teacher in you know how does the body relate to uh, um, as does how does it relate to you as an individual as a you know as, as a consciousness and uh, you know, how attached are you to it and all of that. So that's just one example, and then uh, you know I. I'm in a 54-year uh, marriage, uh, so every day there's some, still some kind of uh, teaching to be gone, gotten in that. Uh, you know, when you're, whenever you have a relationship with anybody, there's, you know, in, in and of itself, that's a teaching. You know, what, what are you bringing to it? You know, all of that, every, every instance is, remains a teaching. And then how are you attached to your career? How are you attached to, you know, uh, the teaching of being a teacher, you know, the teaching of this kind of exchange that we're having, you know, how do you get out of the way and how much in the way are you and where's your ignorant and all of that kind of stuff. These are, you know, these are all, every, as you said, everything is a teacher. Yeah, and, and boy, listening to you describe all that, like, it really makes me appreciate whatever the skill set is of... Um, being a, a learner, <laughs> being a learner, because like there's everything that comes up in my experience or my my consciousness. I I have the ability to choose how I want to relate to it. And oh, that's, you know, something just clicked because I've I know you often use the word skillful, which is such a beautiful, a beautiful word for navigating experience. It's kind of a poetic word, I think, because it's it seems impossible to describe except when I'm being skillful with my thoughts or experience, like I, I'm able to recognize that that's happening. Well, how would how would you describe that word skillful? Because it, it really does seem it seems like a pretty deep word. Oh, actually. It's a, yeah, it's incredibly deep. I mean, skillful means or, you know, basically, uh, you know, the, the word I'm I'm not uh, I probably have it somewhere in the back of my mind what the uh, whether the Sanskrit or the uh, um, Pali term for, for skillful is, but to me, it is something that is in keeping with achieving your objective within whatever values or constraints that you have. So that's kind of a very that's my uh, 
project manager, you know, chief executive officer, your chief uh, information officer uh, mind clicked in to that definition. But it's kind of, that's what skillful is. So if your goal is to, uh, uh, you know, become increasingly uh, light, uh, lighter, then you, you know, whatever it is that you're doing, is it getting you closer to that or is it getting you further away from that? If it's getting you further away, then it's not so skillful. You know, if it's achieving what you want, then it becomes skillful. So it's that, that quality of, uh, I guess, um, practicality. You know, is, is it practical? Is it something that you can really say is, uh, is a useful and effective way of doing something? You know, in, in sometimes there's, um, you know, in, in, in the Buddhist uh, tradition, there's write this and write that. There's a, uh, you know, there's a notion of, uh, of what right means and that, in many cases, really what it's, you know, right speech and so forth, uh, skillful could be a, uh, a term that's used that doesn't have some of the uh, connotations that the word right has. You know, where right is, you know, associated with uh, wrong, basically. There's an immediate, uh, you know, uh, judgment in, uh, involved in it. And then, you know, all sorts of things fall out of that. Where skillful is much more technical and, and lighter in, in terms of its uh, baggage. What, um, w would you say that your experience as a, in like project management and coming from skillfulness from that angle, and you were saying like um, the ability to achieve what one's viewpoint is set on or like view is set on, have those skills, do you think, translated to your spiritual skillfulness? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it goes back, you know, it's more of a cyclical kind of thing. One enhances the other. But yeah, I think that, uh, you know, that having that, for me, having that mindset of uh, projectizing things is, a, you know, it's certainly like everything else is a double-edged sword, but it basically says that if you can manifest things, if there's a, you know, like a, a skillful way of operating, and the sense of what the one's goals are, uh, then you have a uh, uh, an opportunity to channel your you know your energy in some in a certain way. Yeah. So you know, and then the skills that come along with you know with managing a project are like the same skills that are used in managing a life. You know, it's like risk attention to risk versus reward, attention to, uh, you know, to uh, cost associations and time associations. As long as we're in the relative realm, those things have some, you know, some relevance to us. Yeah. Oh, man, that's so cool that I've been thinking a lot about um, mastery recently. And because what you're saying is it's like everything, everything's a fractal of each other. Like if if I study enough in almost anything, I can, it feels like I can see everything in that. And that's why mastery seems so cool to me because it's just choosing something almost, I mean, it doesn't have to be arbitrary, but choosing something almost arbitrarily to just get super deep into so that you can learn about everything through that thing. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the, you know, that's, I think the notion be, 
behind the uh, Zen art. You know, you focus in on something you, and you make it your effort to perfect that. And while recognizing that it's never going to be completely perfect, you use it as a vehicle for your, uh, you know, for your life, for your practice. Uh, so at the same time that we're talking about that, I'm looking at a picture of Maharaji. You know Maharaji from, you know, you mentioned Be Here Now. So, so I'm looking at a picture of Maharaji and, and a picture of uh, Hanuman. So, you know, so we're talking about mastery and, you know, the, the, uh, the, the okayness of uh, making things happen, of manifesting. Because I think that those, you know, that's really what, you know, where we had brought up before. So that's on one side. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, the, the whole uh, tantric Buddhist or, you know, Vajrayana tradition has got a lot of manifesting going on in it, you know. Uh, and, you know, so same with many other traditions. Anyway, so that's on one side. The other side is like when I look at Maharaji, I'm reminded that it's all just a play and, and we don't really have much in the way of control over it. You know, it happens as it happens. And how do you bring those two together in a, uh, you know, like in a comfortable, practical way? You know, there's, there's a, a wonderful story that, you know, I've heard like hundreds of times, it seems. But, you know, a lot of the uh, Western uh, uh, followers of, uh, of Maharaji were on a bus and they were going one place and, uh, you know, they uh, were rerouted and, and so forth. And all of it, and their goal was to see Maharaji. And it turns out that he's on the side of the road and already had prepared a, uh, you know, like a meal for them and, you know, welcomed them and so forth. And it basically said that all of the decision-making about what route to take, and, you know, whether to get here or there was just futile. Right. Right. <laughs> and right. But, so that's but, one but they didn't know that when they were yeah. making it. Huh? No, they didn't know it at all. So they did their, their dance and, you know, and, and then came to that realization. But if you take that too far, it, you know, you become, you know, it, if it was possible to become like a, you know, like a total renunciate and live in your, you know, chosen environment, then you could live that way, you know, not making decisions, not, you know, manifesting anything. But if you're living in, you know, in the, in the, world of uh, of things and you want to have a lifestyle that's you know that's comfortable and so forth you need to manifest things you know and the more skillfully you do that and the more you do that in the, within the constraints of non-harming and uh, you know and at the same time if you can helping then you know then you do that and then it becomes part of your practice hmm. yeah that's cool and <laughs> That I really like that Maharaja story, Maharaji story, just because, I mean, I relate so much to my mind just feels like this bus of chaotic people arguing over like what I'm, what I should do when like, yeah, that just, that doesn't need to happen. I'm, I'm feeling right now. So well, I appreciate you sharing that story. Um, I was also, um, I was curious about, well, in this way that we're talking about mastery, I'm curious for, for for you and what that means in a uh, relationship, whether it's, I guess, intimate relationship or just relationships in general, like what's the, um, I guess, like the North star there. Well, this is also a very interesting one. Uh, you know, uh, 
relationships has become my uh, current uh, point of uh, focus of you know some of my writing and uh, also uh, teaching and uh, having own personal experiences. So I think the uh, for me mastery of of relationship is really about ultimately seeing every relationship as an opportunity to remember the the nature of love as the surrounding milieu in which everything is taking place. That whether the relationship is between me and somebody that's getting me a cup of coffee in, you know, in a, in a cafe, or between myself and my wife, or between myself and a student, or between myself and anybody, people at work, if the underlying uh, sense in that relationship is this is this is just another opportunity to open heart and be in the in the space of love in the ocean of love so that's a starting point then if you know if you can manifest that there's a likelihood that some of the other um, signs of a you know like a, of a mastery of relationship occur you know is there uh, unnecessary conflict is the necessary conflict resolved in a you know in a way that doesn't uh, destroy the relationship and if it does how do you manage that you know so it's it's depending on the nature of the relationship whether it's a business relationship or a you know a romantic relationship how do you navigate it in a way that satisfies the participants and satisfies the people around the participants So it's a, it, yeah, it's a very interesting dance. I, th I think it's the, uh, you know, it's the, um, for me, it's, it's the, the vehicle. It's the space. This is the monastery is basically relationships. And I think, I don't remember the exact words of it, but there's a quote from Krishnamurti that uh, basically says that uh, with, Without relationships, there is nothing. And you know, and you know, you can go into what he really means. By that. You're familiar with Krishnamurti is you know basically a, a non. He teaches non-dual uh, philosophy or you know, Advaita. So he's now saying that without relationship, there's nothing. So everything that we are seeing in the in the relative realm is relationship between people, between people and things, between things and things. So that's relationship, I think, is where it's at. And I think we're seeing at this very moment, a lot of uh, people are writing about relationship. There's people are speaking about relationships. We've moved from, you know, pure loving kindness meditation to recognizing that loving kindness is something that manifests itself in relationships and not just, you know, sitting on a cushion and, uh, you know, uh, wishing everybody to be well. Uh, so it's that, I think that that, you know, not that that recognition is, is totally new and it's, it's always been there, but now we're starting to see more of a, uh, uh, an articulation of that. And I think that that's very important. You know, I, I really like that idea that, Everything, 
I'm in relationship to, I guess, everything in the relative world. Like, I have a relationship with my pen right now that I'm holding and a relationship with my computer and with you. And I, I guess the more intimate the relationship, the more, uh, I guess, the more complexity is there. It's like, it, in my experience, it seems to open some kind of channel bigger the more intimate the relationship is. The more, yeah, it, it certainly gets you, it pushes more buttons on one level. It really involves a much deeper level of of, uh, of, of the, your psychodynamic uh, and even spiritual qualities. You know that that depth of relationship in a uh, you know in a, in a very intimate uh, relationship is really putting you in touch with a level of your experience of your being that is not touched in in a, uh, a not in a non-intensive, um, non-intimate uh, relationship. So it's they're very important. And I think that, uh, interestingly, it's, it's a, uh, you know, there's this whole tantric uh, um, set of practices, this tantric approach, which often, you know, gets boiled down to, you know, to, to sexuality, but it's, it's certainly not limited to that. But part of it is the recognition that when, there is an extremely intimate relationship. There's an opening that creates an opportunity for experiencing unity. And in that experience of unity between two, there can be now a taking, one can take away from that a, uh, you know, one, first of all, you come in contact with your own hindrances and, and obstacles, but two, you can come away with that ability to transfer that sense of, uh, you know, of connectedness, that sense of unity in all of your other relationships as well. What do you, what do you mean when you say transfer there? Well, it, let's say you're in an intimate relationship and there's a lot of loving feelings. There's a lot, of, there's a sense of uh, wholeness and that kind of thing. Then uh, you you go to another relationship and, you know, maybe it's in, in business. Can you now feel somewhere in that, that same quality of, uh, of openness with the other person without, you know, while at the same time being situationally appropriate. Yeah. 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 You know, you don't want to get into hugging <laughs> right. your boss. Or, you right. Yeah. I, situationally appropriate. That's, that's something that I find myself, um, whether intentionally or not, uh, running into boundaries on just because I love, I really like connecting with people. And um, yeah, I was just thinking as you were saying that it feels like there's almost two types of intimacy that are related, maybe more, but one of them is like the experience of being with a long-term partner over a really long time and just getting to know the complete ins and outs of another psychology and and also just sharing everything about your world and being fully known. There's such like a beautiful depth there, and, but also there's a depth and breadth, but also there's like, a, like I've done uh, maybe not Tantra specifically, but a bunch of like intimacy events that's become an interest of mine. And sometimes I can meet a person and for the first time we're looking at each other in the eyes and it feels like we've sunk into, I don't know, it, sometimes it just feels like we're in this completely separate world and are penetrating a hole in reality that we're existing in. And that can be with like a total stranger and just happen like once, which is also is really deep. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's a very, I think, interesting thing to, you know, particularly at this uh, juncture in my life is that more and more 
I'm finding that ability to have those quick um, types of uh, intimate, you know, relationships. I'm not talking sexually at, at all. You know, it's like, but meeting. I, what I hear you saying is that you meet someone, you look into their eyes, you you know have the intention to to open, and all of a sudden there's a chemistry there. Is that, is that what you're saying? So so what is that chemistry? And do you you know just deny that that it's there? Do you you know do you jump into it you know in a situationally non-appropriate way and and so forth? How do you manage it? But certainly it is it is like very powerful stuff. You know, if this is huge energy that's you know that's being experienced, how one deals with that is a very very important and uh, not so well answered question in a lot of the teachings you know you see what's happening in uh, some of the uh, teaching traditions and not only in buddhism but also in uh, uh, christianity and so forth is the you know the um, abuse you know sexual abuse of uh, you know like of students and uh, of parishioners and all of that so now uh, some of that, if it's channeled in the right way, could be what you're talking about in terms of this quick intimacy stuff, but it's not manifesting itself in a, in a conscious way. It's not, it's not skillful in that it's violating the power uh, uh, relationships. It's violating, um, it, it's not skillful. It's not helping people get to, the, you know, to, to some greater degree of enlightenment. But let's say you've got a situation where there's a student and a teacher and they have this kind of connection or two strangers who have this kind of connection but are in um, um, each in longer term relationships that they don't want to break. How do you manage that experience of that fire, that super energy in a way that is skillful? Yeah. Totally. I mean, I think that's, it's such an awesome and like nuanced and complex inquiry because the, whatever chemistry is, it's so, I mean, it's an invisible thing. And I find this whole area really fascinating in that I, I had an experience maybe, maybe three, three months ago where I was visiting a friend and what, and she lived in Hawaii at the time. And what the trip ended up being was her acting, I don't know too much about archetypes, but acting as an archetype for me of either a sacred prostitute, or I think there's another word that represents something like that. Yeah, bikini maybe uh, is a way of putting it. It's not certainly not a, uh, meant as a as a prostitute, but a, a bikini in the Tibetan tradition is a visitation by a uh, a female you know, embodied entity that often opens one up to uh, experiencing that that kind of quality of, that we you know we're referring to that that's energy on some level yes yeah totally that that feels right and there's another word i've heard i don't know what this one means uh sex priestess but yeah i've i guess i've come across those words in like um new age exploration which has a lot of well all kinds of stuff going on in there but but it was so fascinating because um in her acting as a dakini essentially what happened was we just fell into a space of intimacy deeper than i had ever been in before and it felt like i was like my level of consciousness was just rising to into her field. And I was just existing in that field of deep connection with her for several days. 
And then when I left, it was like, I mean, it faded off for sure, but it was like I just upgraded my ability to meet someone in intimacy. And then I was able to connect with people intimately and like bring them into a higher field than, than previously. It was, just, it was really a trip, quite a trippy experience. Yeah, well, that's exactly what I was you know, expressing before is this, this notion of having that experience and then being able to transfer it and, and uh, share it. That's, uh, yeah, that's extremely you know, great stuff. But now, do you, um, did you break any precepts you know, in doing that? And if you did, what's the balance between those precepts and the use of that energy in that skillful way, uh, and how tight does one couple in with the uh, with these precepts? When you, do you mean specifically like the Buddhist precepts? Yeah, yeah. So that, let's say that you you know you've signed on for uh, the precept of uh, uh, avoiding any kind of uh, sexual impropriety. Okay. What what's impropriety mean? Yeah. Well, usually adultery. Um, some kind of uh, child abuse, things like that. You know, it, it, it has a lot of different, you know, potential uh, nuances to it. But uh, yeah, but misconduct of yeah. some kind. But say, say that you're, you know, you're, you're, well, he, here's another story that I've recently read. And uh, it's about a uh, very, very accomplished practitioner is visited by uh, first a, a, a woman, a lower caste. He's, he's basically in, at first in the Hindu tradition. So he's visited by a, a, a person, a low caste person who offers him meat and he turns down the meat. And then he's visited by a, uh, uh, let's call it a uh, sex priestess, priestess. This is after he takes uh, Buddhist vows, and he becomes a follower of the uh, of, of uh, the Buddha, and uh, the uh, and he you know says no, go away, and then he's uh, given a third uh, experience where the uh, you know the the um, person who was working very closely with his main teacher comes to him and offers him sexual. Uh, uh, um, practices and because of his precepts he uh he basically turns that down and the as i got it the mor moral of the story was that he had to spend another lifetime because he did not enable himself to get past his attachment to the precepts and in the uh, in some of the you know tibetan tradition there's this idea of a gana puja Agana Puja, as I understand it, is a, uh, a, a, a ritual in which all um, precepts are suspended as a way of, uh, uh, you know, basically seeing that they're just more manifestation of mind and more uh, phenomena that, you know, that are occurring. And, you know, so all of that. So this is a ritual then. But now... We don't have, I mean, sexuality as a part of that is, you know, is kind of, is considered to be the ultimate, you know, so you've seen, you know, these icon, iconographic representations of, uh, uh, of Yab Yum. Yeah. What's, what's Yab Yum? Uh, it's the uh, intertwining of male and female, 
So there are these are images of uh, you know of, of of yogi and yogini together in in sexual embrace. So that's been the you know kind of the pinnacle of of that kind of experience because that's where the greatest intimacy between two people theoretically is. But as you said, there's more, there are many dimensions to it, I believe. I mean, my experience is that there are many dimensions of it. And sex is, while a very, very strong dimension of it, has a lot of uh, baggage associated with it. So can one, yeah, so can one connect in a way that still provides that experience of deep intimacy with the other? And not necessarily sharing your deepest secrets, but, you know, just being together in that way of uh, just being totally open and not having a lot of, uh, you know, issues with one of, you know, that thing that you're talking about. That makes me wonder about, like, because I agree that to me, sexual energy can arise in spaces of intimacy. And to me, it's just like one expression of intimacy, but not necessarily like deeper than others or deeper or better like for example uh dance is a really big part of my life and i find i can intimately connect with people through dance in ways that are are really prof profoundly deep and just as deep as a sexual connection and it makes me wonder uh why like why uh wisdom traditions all seem to be be like hard on sexuality they seem they all seem to have like um some like warning against it and I mean, I guess sexual sex is like very seductive and touches into a primal instinct. But yeah, I just find all the, uh, the baggage so troublesome. Well, but, you know, keep in mind that the uh, if you, you know, in India, there are temples filled with, you know, uh, iconography, statues and so forth that are representing the, you know, sex, sexuality. And you know, in the Tibetan tradition, there is there is also an underlying uh, understanding of the use of sexuality as tantric uh, in, in tantric practice and so forth. That's there. It's not on the surface because basically it is such a strong energy and so easy to get caught up in and so easy to uh, you know to to uh, enable abuse and you know all you know it's got a lot of it's a, it's got a lot of energy. So the energy can be used in, in negative ways or not. So it's been kept under the uh, uh, under the surface in those traditions, and in some cases, to the extent that it's become uh, eliminated because of the you know, a, a certain puritanical view that maybe even comes more from the West than you know than in the East, but has influenced these traditions. So that it's no longer acceptable. You know, look at the, the the whole Rajneeshi experience was you know an example of uh, sexuality being uh, something that was accepted in that circle as being a uh, spiritual practice. You know, but very quickly it got into uh, you know orgies you know for pleasure kind of thing, as opposed to uh, you know intentional use of the of the energy. To transcend the uh, you know the self, so there's a lot of interesting stuff in it, and you know to my, I mean my feeling is that uh, unless you're really in a you know like very very kind of special you know situation, 
sexual relations between, you know, practitioner partners on that level have to be very, very carefully managed, you know, by the participants, not by some external body. But uh, so that, if you take that now off the table and you, you know, use dance, which I think is a great analogy, you're still getting that same kind of experience. And maybe it's lasting for 20 minutes. And then it, it goes away, but you've had that experience if you're conscious and you can see how it now relates to the sexual experience that you have with a partner or an experience you have in work. You know, it all becomes a dance. I had a lovely experience a couple of weeks ago. I was coming back from, uh, you know, from somewhere I was passing Madison Park and, uh, in Madison Park, there was a band, a big band playing uh, uh, salsa music. And it's you know, a whole bunch of people and everybody's dancing. So I danced with you know, some woman and we had a great you know, relationship in the dance. We never even spoke to one another. You know, it was, and you know, at the end of the dance, we you know, bowed to one another and just went our separate ways. But that experience was very intense, very intimate. You know, it's it's something beautiful about that. Just like not trying to make it anything that it wasn't too, and just letting it be a beautiful 20 minute experience. Exactly. Cool. Well, George, we're at about time and I'm wondering if you want to share where folks can find you or your content. Well, I have a website. Uh, it's called Pitagorsky And on that website, there is a an option for uh, signing into a newsletter. Uh, it's called Breakthrough Newsletter, and you can just Google Breakthrough and Pitagorsky, and uh, you can sign up for that. I do a, a monthly uh, article, basically, that uh, deals with these same kinds of issues and more and more moving from what used to be a uh, organizational project management kind of centric uh, focus to much more open, you know, uh, uh, coming out of the closet as a spiritual teacher. So... Uh, <laughs> Uh, so how long that will last, who knows? But the uh, uh, yeah, so that's that's certainly the best way to you know to to get in touch with me at the moment. I don't really have any uh, courses that I'm uh, 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 going to be offering, and uh, that's going to probably change in the near future. But uh, uh, for the, for this very moment, there's nothing that I can offer in the way of a course. But anybody who wants to email me is, uh, you know, is perfectly, uh, uh, I'm willing to take uh, emails and uh, questions and what have you on info at pitagorskyconsulting.com. And Pitagorsky is spelled P as in Peter, I-T-A-G-O-R-S-K-Y. Cool. And I'll include all of that in the links below this too. Well, George, man, thank you so much for um, spending the time talking. This was really interesting, and I, I really just appreciate your willingness to open yourself up to my curiosity. Um, I learned a bunch today, and I'm leaving feeling inspired and, like, revved up. Great. I'm happy to, to, uh, to be here with you. Hey, friends. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you got something out of this episode. I know that I sure had a blast with it. If you enjoy this podcast, please head over to iTunes and give it a five-star rating. I'm offering an exchange right now where if it feels in alignment for you to give this podcast five stars, then send me a message on Facebook, let me know you did it, and then I'll sit down, take some time to grok your profile, 
and I will write you a thoughtful and sincere compliment. Truly, please take me up on it. And if this episode touched on something you think a friend might find titillating, pass it on to them too. And I just want to say, I bring my utmost sincerity to each of these conversations, and I really do want to spread vibes and information that cause people to reflect and deepen and just live a more honest, kind, and vivacious life. Because I really believe that the state of the world needs everything that we can give it. It needs people to be at full capacity. It needs people to be living their life fully and giving their greatest positive impact to humanity. And so if I can just flick over one domino with this podcast that flicks over a couple more that lead people into living their life fully and giving back to the earth, then by Jove, man, I will be a happy dude. So trying to do my part here and any help, love, and support, I would just so greatly appreciate. And at the very least, I am super appreciated that you listened to this episode and much love, folks. I'll see you next time.